One, the mistake that there's no life after death. To believe that there's no life after death is a huge mistake. To be ignorant of mankind's greatest responsibility, that is also a huge mistake. And third, to not know who Jesus really is. That is a great error. Now, maybe you're like the guy who thought he made a mistake once, but he was wrong. I just want to see if you're paying attention here. I mean, my goodness here. So what really happens when we die? That's the old question, isn't it? I mean, we can guess because of what the scriptures say, but nobody in this room has been there and done that, right? Job fourteen fourteen: If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. And so this is Job being one of the oldest patriarchs of the faith in the Old Testament. I mean, this has been the quandary for centuries. The Bible tells us that we are eternal beings. We're created in the image of God. We're created to image Him, to be His representatives, to have dominion over this earth and do what He would do if He were here personally. Kind of like what Jesus did when He was here trying to make this world a better place. The part of our being that we do not see, the inner man, the soul, that'd be who you are, your personality, and your spirit. They are the eternal. That is the eternal part of your being. The body, that which we do see, is the part that's connected to this earth, and it will remain on this earth. It will cease to function at some point in time, which we refer to as death. But our soul and our spirit, the immaterial part of our being, will go on and exist for eternity. Ecclesiastes 12.7 Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So, death does change the relationships on the horizontal. You know, our loved ones are no longer here. But on the vertical level, the relationship that we've had with the Lord while we were on this earth does not change. It actually, for those who love God, it's greatly enhanced. And they're in the very presence of God. And it is God's will that our soul and our spirit would not be unclothed. As it is now, we have our soul and our spirit in our body. We are clothed. It is our vehicle, if you will, in which we are able to communicate and have our being while we are on this planet. But once that body dies, we are unclothed. And according to the scriptures, it is not God's will that we be unclothed. So on the other side... In the eternal part of our existence, we will once again be clothed with a new body. 
God wants us to be that integrated unit that he originally created and united together. We're going to receive a body that's perfectly suited for eternity. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So, you know, no need to fear of holding on to what you have. It's okay. This is the debate here about life after death with the Sanhedrin as we pick it up here in Mark 12. Matthew 12 won't work. (laughs) Let me get there. Okay. Verse 18. Then some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and he leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. And so the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Well, therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife shall he be? For all seven had her as wife. And Jesus answered and said to them, are you, there, are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the scriptures, nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, that they rise, and have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. So we have a scriptural debate here. The hypotheticals brought out from this Leverite provision made in the Old Testament for the continuation of lineage. If a man die and not have any children, it was important that his family line not die out. Therefore, it was the brother of the deceased to take his wife and have children for the brother. And they were sort of mocking uh, this concept here. And this I think these people were actually quite named properly, if you will. Um, It's a bad joke, but I love it. (laughs) They were sad, you see, (laughs) because they didn't believe in the resurrection. (laughs) And they didn't know the scriptures, nor the power of God. That's why they were sad. And they were a group of actually from the priestly line that had were part of the Jewish Supreme Court. And they actually received the Pentateuch as the Word of God, but they did not receive the oral traditions that were passed down uh, from the elders, uh, as did the Pharisees who considered those things binding as well as the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible. And so uh, these were the liberals of the day 
the aristocrats who sort of look down their noses at the peasants, you know, as it were, the class differences and all. And so they didn't really believe the scriptures. They didn't really believe, uh, obviously, in what was said. And, and the reason why they didn't believe is because they didn't really know the author. They had a form of godliness, but no power, no relationship. And they were mistaken in two basic areas, which you do not want to be mistaken in. I do not want to be mistaken in these two areas. One, the knowledge of God's Word. And I think this is a big problem in the church today. I've mentioned it many times and we're all aware of it. There is a lack of a good working knowledge of the Scriptures. My aim as a pastor is to make you the most knowledgeable and understanding of the Word of God as I possibly can. Because when you develop a love for the Word of God and an understanding of how it's knit together by 40 guys over about a 1,500-year period, which in reality is one author, how things are so intricately connected in these motifs that come through the Word from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's a wonder. It's a joy. It's to discover the wonderful nuggets of truth that are there for us. The Word is alive. And when you develop a love for the Word of God, it comes alive as you read it. It isn't some book with paper and ink that we just read and ho-hum. No, the author begins to speak to you, and it's a beautiful thing. But these men, the Sadducees, were ignorant of God's word. And because they were ignorant of God's word, the second thing came upon them. They did not know, they did not personally experience the power of God. When people at your work look at you and think you're a little off because you believe in God, and it's because of these two things. They don't know the Bible. They don't begin to understand the Bible. Nor do they know the person that you know. Don't expect them to understand. It's like a blind man expecting him to you know, reveal colors to you. It's not going to happen. He can't see them. They can't see nor understand or comprehend the person of God or his power. But you and I should not fall into that category. And so as a result, they were deceived. Deceived by the God of this world. The God of this world had blinded their eyes. Their inner man was blind to the truth of God. You never, we never want to be guilty of biblical ignorance or of the power of God. Because what we will do is we will deny the truth. That's what we'll do. We'll just deny it completely. We'll deny what happens at the reality of death will deny the hereafter. Must remember that God's plan is bigger than this life for us. It's so easy. We all sort of fall into this trap because it's pretty impossible to grasp eternity in our present state. When we talk about it, forever. Well, that doesn't, like, okay, it's, it's not something tangible. You can't really get your mind around that. I mean, forever? You mean, like, I am, like, forever? It's never the past? I mean, I don't wait. 
You know, you just lose it after a while. You can't get there. But God has that in mind. And so if you think for a moment, and this is sort of hard, that God isn't bound by time. He exists outside of his creation, but he's manifested himself within creation so that he can relate to the ones he has created. And in heaven, there's those of us who are thought that there's no time in heaven, that it's just timelessness. Well, that's not true, because there is time. There's a sp- in Revelation, we read that <clears throat> there's a space of quietness for a half an hour. You know, I don't know if that's Eastern Standard Time or what that is, but it's, it's a, you know, you can't have music without time. And we know that there's singing going on, so there's, there's progression of events. So, so time is maybe different than we are used to time, but time is nonetheless there. And God created us to be in that realm a lot longer than in this realm. So... Again, that's tying into that idea that we're going to be clothed and made fit for that eternal experience that we're going to have. Now, obviously our knowledge on this subject, the resurrection, is limited. But let's just take some time to look at what has been revealed to us in the scriptures. And the big question is, how are the dead raised? If we do have a resurrection, and we do, and remember... 1 Corinthians is the resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read as much as I would like to, just simply to remind us. But maybe this could be your assignment this week. Are you okay okay with that? And if you don't do it, then that would be an F. Right Right out of the gate, that's an F. So, let's not get any F's this week, okay? No, nobody likes F's, right? That's, that's bad. <laughs> A glorious body. This is verse 35. <clears throat> but some will say, how are the dead raised? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body which shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives a body as it pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not of the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh of men, another kind of flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. The glory of the terrestrial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, the glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, and for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is a resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body, It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There is a spiritual body. And so you can continue on with that. And it's just a very encouraging chapter when it comes to uh, understanding how the dead are raised. But 
Another question is, how we, will we appear? Let's define this maybe a little bit more. You can turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John, that's about four books from the end. 1 John chapter 3. <clears throat> Verses 1 through 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as he is pure. We're going to all receive a glorified body similar to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, after the resurrection, he appeared to disciples. He didn't need a key to unlock the door to get into the upper room where they were hiding out. He just walked right through the wall. But he had a body of flesh and bones. No blood. He shed that on the cross. Uh, some type of a glorified body. Was that the complete glorification of Christ? Probably not. That would be Revelation chapter 1 if you're familiar. Interesting. But there's something inside you. There's something inside me. There's a yearning. We know. Just intuitively and innately, that there's something greater than we have previously experienced. And that we sense that there's something coming for us that is so fantastic. It's just an anticipation within ourselves. We don't like our human limitations. Nobody does. Now, if you're paying attention to what's going on in the world today, mankind, in their blindness, in their ignorance of the scriptures, in their ignorance of the power of God, in their willing rebellion and turning their back on God, are trying to change this whole problem of human limitation. It's called transhumanism. And actually, I think what we're presently experiencing is sort of one of the first steps in getting people brainwashed into having their bodies transformed into something so they won't be so limited. Let's put these little nanobots inside their bodies. Let's, let's do brain enhancements, you know. Instead of taking the dis- time to discipline ourselves to learn certain things, we'll just download that, you know, now that you've got this chip in your brain, you know. I mean, just do a little homework on this thing. This isn't far-fetched. These people are out there. I don't mean like out there, but they are out there, but they're really out there mentally. And I would say not go, not you to go where they are, <laughs> go here where you should be. <laughs> but that's what we long for and yearn for, and that's not something we can do for ourselves. This is something that God has to do, and God is going to do for us. And I love First Corinthians five one eight because it gives us this hope. First Corinthians five one through eight. For we know. I like that. We know. We're not ignorant. We know that if our earthly house, our body, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened. You can stop groaning now. Get a grip. But you, we can all relate to that. Oh, it was a short night last night. Oh, right? That's what we're talking about. And the limitations. Why am I, why do I forget things? Why can't I do that? Oh, he can do that, but I can't do that. Ah, you know, that's the frustration. But this is what he's talking about. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in this body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. And we are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now as we read in the text in Mark there, Jesus said, when, when they rise from the dead. It's not a matter of if. It is when. As sure as you are sitting in this seat this morning, and I am standing here in front of you, that event that Jesus talked about, the resurrection of the dead, it's more sure than that, than you sitting here and me standing here. There's coming a glorious transformation. Not only for mankind, but as the scripture says, for all of nature. Even the earth, and what God created in its beautiful form that was tainted and cursed because of the fall, groans, and it will also be transformed. A great metamorphosis will take place. The Bible does tell us by this interaction. So God allows things to happen. Have you ever noticed that? that He will allow certain things to happen that are so opposite of what it should be, that it makes the reality of what should be vivid. Like, this is what is right. Well, that's really wrong, and now we really know this is right. I mean, this is an important thing you need to, to understand, uh, the concept that God often uses so that we, we can see and we can grasp and understand. So we learn from this rebellion of the Sadducees against the Word of God, and in their ignorance, uh, we can see that their question, as most hypothetical questions are, was completely irrelevant. But through their scoring of the truth, we learn something. God imparts knowledge of what is it like for human beings that are already there. Well, first and foremost... They're not dead. They're more alive now than they've ever been. And we find out that there's no marriage in heaven. There's no contractual marriage like we did. I did a wedding yesterday, last evening. Until death do us part, you know, that, that, you know, 
But that's just for here. I mean, that's the commitment we make. But in heaven, there's no contractual marriage. There's no need for procreation. There's no marriage uh, arrangements made by parents. <laughs> you know, all the young kids said, yeah, amen to that. <laughs> Redeemed mankind will be like the angels in what sense? In immortality. This mortal will put on immortality. So, I'm not sure where these... I, you know, I probably shouldn't call them knuckleheads, but that's really what they were. Mean in that position of influence within the nation, the Supreme Court, essentially, and being that ignorant of God and of the Scriptures was not a good mix. How could they possibly think that not having, you know, marriage relationships, how could that marriage relationship on earth deny the resurrection of the dead? I mean, how, how do you get there? It's illogical to me, but somehow in their arrogance they got there. Secondly, we're going to be like the angels, as I said there. They don't marry, they don't die. There is immortality, but... Uh, I think we have to be careful when we read this because there are those who interpret this because they don't marry that the angels are sexless. Well, they are sons of God, Ben Elohim. They're sons of God. And just because they have no need to procreate does not mean they're sexless. And so that would be reading into the scriptures. Um, we know that according to Genesis 6 that they are capable of sexual relationship and somehow they were they're able to come and go from our realm certain levels I guess of angels well that might make some of you a little uncomfortable that little sci-fi clip there but you better get used to it if you're reading the Bible <laughs> there's a lot of six-fingered people that I don't understand in the Old Testament and but they're there there's some strange t text indeed But God's plan and purposes are much different for eternity with mankind. And so, and then another thing I find interesting in this text is the, the fact that Jesus said, I, he referred to the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And apparently um, that was sufficient in Jesus' logic, in God's logic, uh, to be enough information to prove that the resurrection of the dead would occur. Because those men were not dead, they were alive. So that's how it rolled out. And I find it interesting, this is the final week, remember. This is, he's, the triumphant entry has already happened. This is Tuesday. And they're examining, if you will, they're examining the Lamb of God. There's no spot in Jesus. There's no blemish in this lamb. And they're questioning him. And they're going to be done examining here in a minute. He will, dare, it says here they dared not ask him any more questions. No more examination. It's up to you to, to know. And he doesn't take the position here of the Pharisees either in the resurrection, as they believed. Now we know uh, this is about the Sadducees because of Acts. 
Acts 23, if you're familiar with this, when Paul gave his defense there after he was arrested there at Passover. He saw that there were, fit, you know, Supreme Court, you got the Sadducees and the Pharisees there, and he knew that they, there was a doctrinal variance, so he, he immediately divided the group in, in his wisdom. I'm here because of the resurrection of the dead. And he knew that those two groups would, would disagree with each other, so he at least had half the group on his side. It's a pretty smart move by Paul. But that's sort of how we come to know uh, how the Pharisees, or the Sadducees, uh, and some of their theological positions there. In regards to the power of God, Philippians 3.21, Paul makes it clear in his writing to the Philippian church, our citizenship is not, or our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed into his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. So, this is the takeaway. God is not hampered by humanity's death. I, I know, and I believe, but I'm not sure I can get my mind around it. God has a way different perspective on death than we as m- mankind. He's been allowing it to go on for centuries. So he knows something about death that we do not know. And that's okay. And he's not taken back or hampered by the fact that you're going to die and I'm going to die. And that he has this commitment, as it were, to transform you and I so that we're not unclothed unclothed for eternity. That we're not naked, spiritually speaking. We're going to be clothed as a new body. Think of the billions and billions of people that have come and gone from this planet. It's amazing. So take that with you. Think on that for a while. Now let's move on to the next cha- uh, next paragraph here. Verse 28. And the second mistake that some people make in understanding the greatest commandment. Then one of the scribes came, having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well. He asked him, which is the first commandment of all. And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandments greater than these. And so the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. And so this is what the Hebrews refer to, the Jewish people refer to as the Shema. And the word Shema means to hear. And that is always the first thing in our relationship with God. We are to hear. We are to pay attention. We are to know. 
or to gain understanding from what is being communicated to us. So the Jewish people's first confession of faith would be, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And so they would remember that it was the Lord who initiated this relationship with them to take them as his people back in Exodus chapter 4. This is Moses, this is what I want you to say to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord. This is what Yahweh says. Israel is my son, my firstborn. And that word firstborn means preeminent. They were not the first one born. They were not the first nation born. They were the preeminent nation. They were his son, his people. Let them go that they may serve me. You refuse to let them go? I'm going to kill your son. So right out of the gate, the Lord sets down what is to happen. It was now time for the nation to be released from their bondage and to serve him. Promises of Abraham to be fulfilled and come into the promised land. God understood their situation and he swore this oath to the patriarchs, and he was going to keep his word. God is good for his word. And so he, again, through the law, Moses would go on to instruct them what was most important as the people of God was to love God. He chose them to be his God, to express loyal love, loving kindness. It's the word hesed, as you know. There's another word, ahib, love, is is the idea which would probably be akin to our agape as well um, in the New Testament. But is desire and loyalty to someone, always seeking the best interest and to do what's best for that individual. There's nothing selfish about that love. It's others-centered love. That's the love of God that we're talking about. Hesed would also fit into that. That loyal love for Israel. And all God was asking for in response to his commitment to them as his people and as his nation was that they reciprocate. I love you. Will you freely love me? And that's all it is. That's all there is to it. Love God with all your heart, with everything that you are. And love your brother. Love your neighbor. Would you want those things that You've done to others to be done to you. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus put that in the positive. But the idea also is don't do to people what you don't want done to you. I mean, it, it goes both ways, you know. True love does that. The most important thing that you will read in the Scriptures and the command that you read in the scriptures as a believer is that you do what God wants you to do. And you do what God requires of you. And if you do what God requires of you, it's nothing but blessing that will result. The goodness of God will be poured out. And it's an immeasurable gift of blessing that God gives to us. The idea of God's love is to deliver us from our self-worship. In our self-centeredness. By nature, we are self-centered. You don't have to teach your children to, 
to be selfish. Hey, son, why don't you grow up? I want you to be selfish. <laughs> well, this is how you do it. No, they already know how to do that. Mine. Give me that toy. And, and that toy. They're all mine, you know. <laughs> you don't have to explain that to Junior. He gets it. He has it with, innately. But God's love is the only thing that will deliver us from that self-idolatry that we all are cursed with. In our f- and then when we begin to help our neighbor and do the things that they need help with, and, what, and this is, Jesus sort of amplified that by saying, give and it shall be given to you. And that is so counterintuitive to us. If I want lots of money, then every dime that I earn, I must keep. And we're naturally selfish and we will hoard because we want to accumulate wealth. Now, it does not make any sense. But the way to wealth is to give. Let's just sum it up this way. When you learn to give of your time, of your talent, and of your treasure, God is going to give back to you 30, 60, 100 fold. What does that mean? Well, simply put, as a farmer would say, God's got a bigger shovel than you do. (laughs) You shovel it out, and he shovels it in. And you're going to get covered up by his shovel. Let me tell you, it's big. But God's love transforms us. It's the only thing that will change us. You can't put any nanochips in your spirit. It's not, no. No technology is going to fix us. It's, technology is kind of cool, and it, we get caught up in it. We've got to be careful of it. It's a two-edged sword. God's love is not like that. It's transforming, and the only thing that will transform us. So don't neglect. Don't make the mistake of disobeying what God requires. Love the Lord. Express your love to him. When's the last time you got up in the morning and say, Lord, I love you. I love you today. So you can do it right now in your own mind. Just tell him you love him. It'll change you. Good morning, Lord. What are we doing today? Oh, by the way, I just want you to know I love you. Just develop that beautiful relationship with God. That love will break you down. It'll transform you. It'll change you. You really do start caring about other people. It's it's indescribable, isn't it? Third mistake that you don't want to make as we close here is to understand who Jesus is. Because when you see and know and understand who Jesus is, everything falls into place. To not know who Jesus is And to know him in a personal way means you miss the whole purpose of why you are here. He is the key to knowledge. He is the key to truth. He's the key to unfolding the mystery of our lives. All the keys of wisdom and knowledge are locked in the person of Christ. And it is through that personal interaction with him that that door to knowledge, to love, to the purpose of life is all unlocked for you and for me. And there may be some here, setting, that do not know Jesus. 
You've not taken the time to open the, your heart to let Jesus Christ come in. You see, there's a lock and key on your heart that you are you possess the keys. God may knock on your door, the door of your heart, and he may and he does want to enter in. But you have to be willing to open that door, unlock that door, allow him to come in. He's a gentleman. He's not going to force his way in. He would never do that. It's your will. It's your choice. Those of you who are listening by way of the internet, this is something you need to hear as well. Open your heart and allow Christ to come in because you must answer this most important question. As he says here in verse 35, Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. So, in reality, Jesus is holding the Supreme Court, as you will, if you will, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the establishment, the leaders of Israel. He is holding them responsible for the knowledge of who the Christ would be. Now, in the rabbinic teachings, Second Temple Theology and all, this is sort of where it got shifted a little bit, they always had the understanding that there were two Yahwehs. You know, of course, we, we think Trinity in the New Testament, and we kind of read that in now as we go through the Old Testament. But there was the voice, the invisible voice that they heard on occasion, the patriarchs. But then we have the angel of the Lord making his appearance throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 15, the word, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham, the word, does the word of the Lord sound familiar? John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and through him, and any, everything that was made was made by him. And then verse 14, and the word became flesh. Well, he also became flesh in that little appearance there in Genesis 15, where he had the encounter with Abraham. Then in chapter 18, the Lord comes with two angels. And we see this interaction. The voice speaking in Exodus 23. Now look, Moses, tell Israel I'm going to be with them. I'm going to send my angel before you. And you got and warn the people. Tell them that look, be careful. Because if you sin, he's going to whack you. Let's paraphrase. He's not going to let you off the hook. He's not going to overlook your nonchalant approach to him. Be careful how you behave. He's going to be with you. And so the angel of the Lord led them through the wilderness. And so the, Jesus is holding that present generation accountable for the knowledge of who the Messiah would be. 
And so this guy that we've read there in previous verse, there, you know, there, there is only one God, there's no other but he. So they've got this, you know, there's no way. That means God is in heaven, there's no way we could have this visitation of God here on earth. You see, this had sort of migrated into their theology by this time. And today, they do not believe that Messiah will be divine. So really, you know, we're, it's funny, they're, this is one thing the Jews and the Christians believe together right now, that Messiah is about to come. They're stuck on the first coming, we're stuck on the second coming. <laughs> In reality, that's, that's what's going on. So, let me help you and give you a couple of scriptures to take with you in regards to your little study. I'll add this. And you don't want to get an F, right? Okay. First uh, Corinthians 10. So we have the Old Testament revealed in the New Testament to us. And the concealing that was in the Old Testament revealed again in the New Testament. It's kind of nice. First Corinthians 10, 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. I think another translation has the word ignorant. Same idea. Of all that our fathers were under the cloud and all passing through the sea, were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they all drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, that rock was Christ. Exodus 17, the Lord said to Moses, 17.5, Exodus 17.5, Go before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. You see the identification as the rock in the Old Testament. I've mentioned Exodus 23 already. Judges 2, the angel of the Lord came up from Bochim, place of tears. This is Judges. This is now through Joshua and second generation into the promised land and these guys are totally off track. And the Lord has said, look, I'm done. I've led you here, been with you, and you continue to rebel, I'm out of here. My physical presence, I'm gone. I'll come time to time, Gideon, you know, those kinds of things. There were occasions he would return. But the physical presence of him being there regularly, walking through the camp, as we're told, no more. I send away that grace. And so, Acts 7-2, Stephen using it. Uh, another confirmation of who the Messiah would be. Whose son is he? As da- you know, that was the question. How can he be the Lord of David and yet be a son? It can only happen through what means the incarnation. Hello? If I'm the Messiah and I'm the son of David and I'm the Lord that he's referring to, then crown me. I'm the king. That's, that's really the challenge. And they totally blew that off, obviously. So important. Not to make the mistake. 
and to think that there's no life after death. It's a horrible thing to live this life and be ignorant of the two basic commands of God that he gave to the human race. Simply to love him and to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. Not hard to understand. Pretty difficult to master. But not too hard to understand. Hear, O Israel. Pay attention. Hear this. And you definitely don't want to make the mistake of not understanding who Jesus is. Making him your savior. Because when you know him for who he is, he would be the most fulfilled. Your life will be enriched. You will experience what Jesus called the abundant life. Because that's why he came. I've come that they might have life. And life more abundantly. Shall we pray? Father, we're so grateful for what has been lined out in the word. That we don't have to be ignorant, Lord. There's no premium on that. We know that. We're asking rather the opposite, Father. That you would open our eyes, our ears, our senses to really grasp your love. The indescribable God will become more describable to us. The incomprehensible God will become more comprehensible. Transform us. Stretch us. Help us to see and understand more of the beauty of who you are. How good you are. Father, I pray that you'll continue to do your transforming work in all of our lives this week. Pour out your spirit upon us, Lord. The flesh profits nothing. We need your spirit, God. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand?